God, or we talk about one of his attributes, it can be a fearful thing. This is one of those messages I could prepare for years and never feel ready to preach it. Um, last night, my sleep was very shallow um, because I kept just sort of waking up. No, that ally needs to change. Okay, I just won't use the PowerPoint. We won't print the handout. Okay, no, we need to do this instead. And then I guess I'd fall back asleep because the next thing I knew, I was thinking about it again and down a different line. Um, but it is a message and a subject that I think is extremely important. When Pastor Hubby sent me a list of doctrines he would like taught on, this was the second one on the list, and I believe an extremely important one. Of, it's a doctrine that is attacked by Bible critics. It is attacked, um, or rather, very wimpily defended, even in some good Bible commentaries, and I don't know if you could even call them good once they start getting wimpy on the virgin birth, but come to Isaiah 7.14, and they're almost apologetic to say that verse has anything to do with Jesus. Um, when the New Testament makes very clear that Matthew 7, uh, sorry, rather Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 is a prophecy about the Messiah. So let's jump into this, and let's first begin with our text, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 14. If you would, let's stand together again, and we've gotten good and relaxed with the beautiful piano playing and guitar playing. So Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our eyes and the understanding of our hearts to understand this deep doctrinal truth that God became flesh, and that God came and was made flesh to dwell among us and to die for our sins. Lord, I thank you for giving us this hope, for giving us this truth, and I pray that it would be clear and simple and easily understood. Um, I just pray that you'd hide me behind the cross and that your name would be uplifted and glorified through this teaching this afternoon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to take our message in four points, and we're going to take it from this verse. We're just going to take this verse, exegete it here, and we're going to take it into four parts. Number one, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Number two, behold, a virgin shall conceive. Number three, would bear a son. Number four, his name would be called Emmanuel. You can look at the historical context, which we're not going to take time to do today. There's too many things to discuss to take time there. There is significance in the, um, in, in the story being told here in Isaiah chapter 7. The king had been given an opportunity to receive a sign from God. Um, God had told the prophet Isaiah to ask the king what sign he would like that would be proof, that would be evidence of God's word. And the king said he didn't want to tempt God. He didn't want a sign. He didn't ask for one, rather. And um, anyway, that sounds like in the text here that God wasn't too happy with that response, and God gave him a sign anyway. And this is the sign that God gives him. So we're going to just jump right in. First of all, four things that we want to see this afternoon about the significance of the virgin birth. Number one, number one, the virgin birth was a sign 
from Jehovah. It was a sign from Jehovah. The Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want one? Okay, well, God will give you one anyway. And this is going to be your sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you're going to call his name Emmanuel. This idea of a sign was something that was common in the Old Testament. A prophet would give a prophecy and then he would say, this is the sign. So when you see this fulfilled, it's proof that the prophet was speaking truth. We see a number of them of signs fulfilled in the New Testament. At Christ's birth in Luke chapter 2 and verse 12, the angel told the shepherds in the field, this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So at Christ's birth, what was the sign? It was swaddling clothes and a manger. At Christ's death in Matthew chapter 12, he had been told that they were going to receive a sign. Let's just flip over there real quickly. Matthew chapter 12. Like last time we did a a doctrine message, I'm going to give you more verses here than we're actually going to look up. So you've got some more to study out later. But Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse number 38, then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. All his miracles weren't enough. In fact, if you study the gospel of John, when the word miracle is used, it's actually the word for sign. So in the gospel of John, when you see the word miracle, it means this was something Jesus did to prove who he was. So every miracle recorded in John was a proof of the the deity of Christ, of his Messiahship, that he was Messiah, that he was Savior. And so here, the the miracles he was doing weren't good enough. And in verse 39, but he answered and said unto them, this is Jesus' response, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And for... And uh, sorry, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So, what was the sign that was going to be given when Christ was crucified? Well, following his crucifixion, he would be buried, and for three days and three nights, he would be in the earth. This was the sign of the prophet Jonas, or Jonah as it is in the Hebrew. This was that sign. And he repeats it again in Matthew chapter 16. So when Christ was buried and was there for three days and three nights and then rose again, that was another evidence. That was the final mark. Um, The cross paid for our redemption. The resurrection proved that he had paid for our redemption and that he was who he said he was. He was also the first fruit from the dead. So we know we can experience the resurrection one day because Christ did. That could go on endlessly. The point is, the resurrection, him being in the grave for three days and three nights and then rising again, that was part of the the sign of the prophet Jonas. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, we have the church on the day of Pentecost. They begin, when the Holy Spirit comes, they begin to speak in tongues. Why did they do that? Well, it was for evangelism. Many people were saved as a result of that. But if you look in 1 Corinthians, Look what he says in 1 Corinthians. First, he marks something interesting about signs. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, begin reading at verse 22, for the Jews require a sign. That's why Old Testament prophets gave a sign. Or perhaps maybe now the Jews require a sign because that's what the prophets had always done. So 
the Jews wanted to see a sign. They wanted to see evidence. Don't just come in preaching Christ. Prove it to me. And that's part of what tongues was, was that proof, as we'll see in a minute. Um, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He said, oh, they may be asking for a sign. The Greeks may be asking for wisdom, but we're going to give you the gospel. That's what we're going to give you. Um, look at chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 14, beginning in verse number 21, it says... In the law, it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will, they hear, uh, they will hear, they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are far a what? A sign to them. Sorry, not. Who who is it assigned to? To them that believe or to them that don't believe? So you're telling me if I go to a church and they tell me, well, I need a sign that you're truly saved. And when you start speaking in tongues, then I'll know you're really saved. I, I've heard that. I've been told that, right? I mean, that's why it's so comical. But it's completely opposite of Scripture because the Scripture says that the tongues were a sign for the unbelievers. The unbelieving who? The unbelieving Jews. So when all of a sudden on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and they started speaking in tongues, you go back to the prophet Joel, he had said that very thing would happen. And so this is a sign, a sign of what? That Christ's church is the real deal. This is not just some new club. This is not just a cult. This is something that, that the Jews should receive. Jesus was the Messiah. His church is being established and tongues was a sign of that happening. So this is that idea of sign. And what was the sign that God was giving this king, and not to him only, but to the nation? He said, a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. So the virgin birth, number one, was a sign from Jehovah. So that right there in and of itself makes me not want to argue with the reality of this being a true doctrinal issue, because it was not from a prophet, it was from God himself. Number two, the virgin birth was a significant miracle, a significant miracle. Now, why do I, I bring this point here? I don't just say miracle because there were other miraculous births in the Bible. Sarah had a miraculous birth. She was old. She and her husband, too old to have children. And the angel of the Lord, actually, if you study the scripture there, it appears that Jesus showed up at their house that day and told Abraham, your wife's going to have a child. And she was outside and she thought that was really funny. And so she's laughing at the fact of old woman Sarah having a baby. And um, anyway, she claims she didn't laugh. And anyway, Jesus heard her. He knew. And anyway, what happens? Nine months later, she has a baby. That was pretty miraculous. Do what? Yeah. So that was, pretty, that was pretty amazing. Hannah, a woman in 1 Samuel who could not have a child, and um, her husband had two wives, and the other wife was always making fun of her because she couldn't have children. She came to the temple. She prayed. She asked God for a child. God gave her a son. Not only did he give her Samuel, but she took Samuel to the temple, gave him to the Lord, and went on to have five more children. That was a miraculous thing. Elizabeth, unable to have children, an old 
Levite woman, her husband a priest, and um, she finds out in this very old age that she's going to have a baby, and she's so embarrassed by the whole thing, she just stays home. Um, It was a miraculous birth. But I say that Jesus was a significantly miraculous birth because his was not just improbable. I mean, old people having babies, that's not normal. But for a virgin to have a baby, that's impossible. So Christ's birth would be impossible. Now let's look over at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 gives us this account and tells us how this would take place. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, this upsets people sometimes because if we read in Matthew chapter 1, which we'll look at in a minute, we find that they were already a couple. Matthew, I mean, um, Joseph was considering divorce, but they were only a spouse. And in this time period, if you were a spouse to be married, we would, it would be sort of like us being engaged today. If you were a spouse to be married, the couple had not yet physically come together, but um, you would still have to divorce your wife to get rid of her because, um, because there, there was a vow that took place with this espousalship when the couple made this vow together. So they were not together yet. She was still a virgin. The word, the Hebrew word, if I can backtrack here for just a second, the Hebrew word in um, Isaiah chapter 7 is a word that often is literally translated young unmarried woman, because literally that's what the word meant. There was another word that was very specific to meaning virgin, but often it insinuated in Hebrew that that was the case of this young unmarried woman. Um, But when you get to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, when Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14, he uses the Greek word for virgin. That's what she was. So if you want God's commentary on exactly what Isaiah meant, just read Matthew chapter 1 and you get God's commentary on his own book. Don't waste your time on many commentaries about Isaiah 7.14 because there's a lot of hogwash out there. But if you want God's commentary, New Testament tells us exactly what he meant, specifically in that verse in talking about this young woman. And so here we are. She is espoused to this man by the name of Joseph. Okay, where did we leave off? Okay, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. What has scared me too. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. You're not in trouble. God's going to speak favorably to you. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. Okay, she's, um, she's a spouse, so she knows this could happen in the future. And bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, and he shall be great, and he shall uh, be called the son of the highest. 
And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be? She understands what he's saying. He's not talking about something in the far off future. She's realizing he's talking about now. She said, how can this be, seeing I know not a man? She's saying, this is not possible. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. This is so amazing. Look what he says. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. We have one member of the Trinity. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. We have the Father. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So God says, I'm, the angel says, God is going to skip the guy. There's not going to be a man involved in this. The Holy Spirit and God the Father are going to put in your womb God the Son. So the Trinity is involved here in how this all is going to happen. This is going to be miraculous. You cannot explain this scientifically because it is a miraculous thing. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. In other words, I'm your servant. Do with me whatever you want. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So we have a very humble servant here as this young woman says, okay, do this to me. I am your vessel. I am God's vessel. I want him to use me as he chooses. So we call this a significantly miraculous birth because it was biologically impossible. It was scientifically impossible. It was humanly impossible. However you want to say it, it was impossible that Mary could have this child. It was humanly impossible, but it was heavenly possible. So number one, the virgin birth was a sign from Jehovah. Number two, the virgin birth was a significant miracle. Number three, <clears throat> the virgin birth revealed the nature of the son. What did he say? The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Now I say that this verse identifies and the verses surrounding it, this doctrine of the virgin birth reveals the nature of the son because a lot about our person is determined on who our father is. You can meet a man, um, you know, there have been different theories over the years on whether all behavior is um, hereditary or whether it is learned or whether it is some of both. My dad was talking about that some when we were together at Christmas, and he was talking about uh, someone that they knew, had known years, years ago, and um, this man had been separated from his family as a baby. And he never met his grandfather. But when they met this young man, they started noticing that he acted like his grandfather. He had even hand motions and body movements like his grandfather. He had, and so there were people that had the theory, oh, all this is learned. And then they saw this and they said, well, maybe some, some things are inherited I'm, because he's acting and he's looking like his father, or his, in this case, his grandfather. 
Let's consider a few things about what this would mean to Christ's nature if he's born of a virgin. Number one, um, let's first look back at Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, it's the first time that the virgin birth is hinted to. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, um, the the serpent is getting his um, punishment for his part in um, Adam and Eve's sin. And in verse 15, God says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and Adam's seed. Thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, this doesn't quite make sense. It should be between the seed of Adam, between his seed and the serpent. But that's not what God said, because God was indicating that there would be a Messiah, that there would be a Messiah who would, his heel would be bruised at the cross. But at the cross, he would also crush the serpent's head. This battle between good and evil had been set fully into motion on earth, and it would be taken care of at the cross. And so he uses this word seed, but he doesn't use it in relationship to the man as would be normal, as would be natural, as would be scientific. He uses it according to the woman. Why? Because the Messiah, he who would crush the serpent's head, would be born of a woman and would not be the son of Adam. As the son of God, Jesus was free from Adam's curse. Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, what did he say? He shall be called the son of who? The highest. He was not the son of Joseph. Joseph was just his stepdad. First time I went to the Philippines with my dad, I was 16 years old and there was a young man uh, well, a, a lady brought me, um, brought her, her teenage son to me. I, like I said, I was 16. I had preached in the church that afternoon. It was a big city church in Manila. And after the church service that afternoon, my dad was in some kind of meeting with pastors, and I was just sitting in the sanctuary, and this woman brought me her teenage son. And she said, I've gotten remarried, and my son will not honor his new stepdad. Basically, she wanted me to fix him in a few minutes. I mean, the guy's my age. And I'm like, what, in, what on earth do I say to this? I mean, I don't have a stepdad. How do I know how to identify with this guy? Who, who in the Bible had to live with their stepdad? I said, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so what did that make Joseph? The guy didn't want to answer that. Did Jesus honor his stepdad? And I took him there in the story where um, he came and found him at the temple. And I must be about my father's business, my heavenly father's business. And, but he honored Joseph and he went home with him. And he learned his father's, his stepdad's traits. It was funny sitting in there in that short conversa conversation, seeing that young man's whole countenance change. And all of a sudden, he had a different attitude toward his stepdad. He could no longer look at his mom and say, the Bible doesn't tell me I have to honor my stepdad. Because now he has Jesus' example. So anytime you're dealing with somebody who's a stepkid, well, Jesus knows what that's like. Because Joseph was not his father. There was this lack of identification between the two of them. 
Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon how many men? All men, for that how many have sinned? All have sinned. Joseph could not father the Messiah because a sinner can only have a sinner. I find, found that out when Jonathan was about two days old. I, I know there are, it's becoming a popular thing in um, conservative circles to believe that your child is born perfect and he develops sin later on. Well, yours may, but mine had it to start with. It became very obvious that I read an article the other day, this natural mom talking about your baby throwing a fit. Your baby's not screaming because it's bad. It's not manipulating you. Um, the baby's just hungry. Can you imagine as she went into all this hogwash about why your baby is screaming at you and every time you pick it up and feed it at any moment it wants it, how the, the baby is not manipulating you? Anyway, uh, we found out very quickly, our children learn how to manipulate quickly. Why? Because they're little sinners. Why? Guilty. Because I'm a sinner. I'm a wicked, dirty, rotten sinner, and my kids picked up on it from day one. Why? Because my father was a sinner, my father before him, all the way back to Adam. We all have Adam as our father. Therefore, we are all born sinners. It is a big problem for us. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. Oh, this is one that you can really get people riled up quoting this verse. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the mothers upon the children. Is that what it said? The iniquities of the fathers under the third and fourth generation. How are you ever going to get to a generation where Jesus could be born perfect? It's not going to work. Why? Jesus needed a pure bloodline. And with God, his father, there being a supernatural putting of that baby into that womb by God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit, by this happening in this way, Christ would have a pure bloodline and therefore he could die for our sins. What a powerful, powerful thought. Look over at Matthew chapter one. And we have Matthew's account of the virgin birth. What did the scripture say? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established. So we have Isaiah, Matthew chapter 1, and Luke chapter 1. We have three witnesses to the virgin birth here. And if you look as God is dealing with Joseph, now the birth of Jesus Christ, verse 18, was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, you should underline those words in your Bible. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She has not been unfaithful, but the Holy Ghost has put this child there. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. They, they could never have been saved from their sins if Joseph would have been the father. I know I've already said that, but I cannot say that enough. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, 
and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. This is significant. And knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. This is a man of character, a man of discipline. And he takes his wife to himself and he says, there's not going to be any doubt about whose child this is. This is the son of God. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Only begotten son. It's really interesting. I looked this up in the Greek. The word only, be, the two words in English, only begotten, is from the Greek word monogenes. Monogenes, I think is how it's pronounced. I've underlined and highlighted part of that word. Anybody recognize it? Genes. It's where we get our word. When scientists were trying to figure up, trying to figure out a scientific term for what they were discovering was those inherent traits that are passed from a father to their child. They decided to use this Greek word, gene. Isn't it interesting that God had used that word in John 3.16 explaining his son. He is the only begotten. He is the only one with his genes. Then I got to thinking about what would happen at the cross if you took some of the blood from the cross and did a DNA test. Whose DNA would show up? You know, they want to find out who the father is. So let's do a DNA test. Go down to the cross, you do the DNA, you can't find a match on earth. There is no one that fathered this child. His DNA matches the father. That was just a really powerful thought to me last night. Hebrews chapter 10, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Why would we need a pure bloodline? The bulls and goats could not take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, that's Christ, he saith, sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Where did God provide this body? In the womb of a virgin. Verse 10 says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And if you read Hebrews chapter 9, we find that there was a need for a perfect blood sacrifice. And that would only come through the sinless blood of Jesus Christ. First John 3, 5, and, we, and ye know that he was manifest he was shown, he was showed to us to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. How could Jesus Christ be sin-free? That man looking at him in this picture, all he could do was look in awe and in wonder and do his best to raise him. I mean, can you imagine raising Jesus? I mean, I mean, sometimes Laura walks in and says, is he being a boy or is he being bad? I don't know. She was raised in a house full of girls. And so Laura walks in, is he being a boy or is he being bad? Do it, does he need to be punished for this? Does there need to be discipline today? Some days I go, oh, yes, he needs a spanking for that. Some days I go in and I'm like, loosen up. He's just being a boy. That's just what boys do. They make those noises. I'm sorry. Um, you know, sometimes I sit down to talk to my boys and I start getting irritated. And I realize I'm getting irritated because they're acting just like me. 
Oh, it's so irritating. Uh, why can't they just be perfect? But can you imagine Joseph? He can't identify with this child at all. You know, he's trying to correct him. Well, when I was a boy, I, never mind, that doesn't work. When I was a, now, he's perfect. He's sinless because he's the son of God. Imagine raising your child, recognizing that I am raising the son of God. That must have been a fearful thing. No wonder Joseph died early. It had to have been a fearful, fearful thing to raise the son of God. So the virgin birth revealed the nature of the son, that he would be perfect, that he would be sinless and provide that perfect bloodline by which our sins could be atoned. And then number four, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. And in Matthew chapter 1, he makes it very clear, which is being interpreted, God with us. The name Emmanuel means God with us. God in a human body. Christ, God, the creator. Look at that picture there. It's, it's supposed to be like Jesus holding the world in his hands. He who created the earth humbled himself. He came down and put on human flesh. How does the gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He was the creator God. The virgin birth proclaimed the deity of the son. He was God with us. Anytime we have a child born in our house, it is amazing to see the mercy, the grace, the creation of God. But we never, ever see God himself. But when Joseph helped deliver that baby that night in that stable or that cave, wherever he was, and he helped deliver that baby, he held in his arms the son of God. This was not his child. This was the son of God. God in the flesh. Look at John 1 verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in what? In the flesh. God came in the flesh. And I don't have it in the notes here, but if you also want to jot down there, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that, he might, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You say, well, anybody who's saved is the son of God. Yes, we are his son by adoption. Christ was the only begotten. He was the only one that had his genes. You and I are adopted into the family of God. What a powerful, powerful truth. God took on flesh to become our Savior. And without the virgin birth, he, it wasn't God taking on flesh. Uh, he could be a prophet, as the, as the Muslims call him, a great prophet. That's all he would be. But the virgin birth proclaims 
his deity, that he was indeed God in the flesh. So let's review here as we come to the end of this. How is the virgin birth significant? Number one, what did we see here? Number one, the virgin birth was a sign from Jehovah. Number two, the virgin birth was a significant miracle. Unique, impossible, but yet with God, nothing is impossible. Number three, the virgin birth revealed the nature of the son, that he was perfect, that he was sinless. Number four, the virgin birth proclaimed the deity of the son, that he was indeed God in the flesh. So think about this as we conclude. Without a virgin birth, we have no Messiah because he, he had to be born of a virgin. Without the virgin birth, we have no Emmanuel. We wouldn't have God with us. We would have no sinless son. We would have no savior. We would have no salvation. There would be no redemption. We would have no perfect offering for sin. Without the virgin birth, you and I wouldn't have much. When I started noticing this one day, the first time I ever taught about the virgin birth, I was kind of blown away as I got to the end of my studies. And I, I made a list. I couldn't find it this time. But I had made a list of all these Bible doctrines that were affected by the virgin birth. And it was unbelievable to me. Even sanctification of the believer. There are so many Bible doctrines that hang on this one. And if we go, you know what, this is kind of ridiculous. People are going to think we're dumb. And you know that word... Um, you know, it, would, it could mean unmarried woman. And so, you know, once she was married and had the child, it could still apply. I, and all these doctrines fall apart because we have no sinless, perfect son. So it's by faith that we understand that God's sign to the nation was true. There was a virgin that had a son. God the father was his father, perfect, sinless son who would die to pay for our sins. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you now. We just thank you so much for sending your son, for preparing him a body, a body that you knew was going to be brutalized and crucified for our sins. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you are pure, and you are perfect, and you are holy. And in your presence, we realize how sinful we are. And in your presence, we realize that we can have a relationship with God the Father because you've taken your blood and shed it for our sins. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this afternoon, Lord, that doesn't know you as their Savior, They've never put their faith in you, the sinless son of God. They would do that today. Lord, again, I thank you for your blood. I thank you for shedding it for our sins. It just overwhelms me to think that the blood of the perfect God in the flesh would be shed and poured out for me. Lord, I pray that you would just help us as we heard this morning to fall more, to fall back into love with you and in gratitude of all that you've done for us. Lord, we love you. I pray that you would increase our faith this week in your word. 
In Christ's name we pray.